Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is the brilliant Sheila Hetty, author of Motherhood and How Should a Person Be? And today we're discussing her latest novel called Pure Colour. It's been described as a galaxy of a novel, explosive and bright and huge and streaked with beauty. And I've got to say, I've not read a novel like it. It is pure Sheila Hetty in all its form. And I really, really enjoyed it. And we talk all about it in this episode. Sheila has also been described as a philosopher of the modern experience, which I feel like really sums up her work. Motherhood in particular, her novel, which grapples with the question of whether or not to have kids, was such a huge inspiration on me, and I got to thank Sheila for that, which was really nice. I really think Sheila Hetty is one of the most talented artists of our time, so it was such a joy and honour to get to spend some time with her talking about her work. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I was on cloud nine after recording it, actually. So enjoy this conversation. Here it is. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am such a huge fan of your books and talking to you about pure colour is going to be very fun. So thank you. So I read Pure Colour, I think in December, I think I was very lucky, I got a proof and I was in New York and it was very busy and, you know, COVID was still everywhere and I was very kind of stressed and anxious. And I remember reading Pure Colour in the lobby of a hotel and feeling very relaxed whilst reading it. So this is just my curious first question, but were you kind of in that state yourself when you were writing? Because I felt very calm and peaceful reading this book. Huh, I... I mean, I wrote it over three years or four, so there was lots of different states. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there were moments when I was calm and peaceful, um, but I think that I just wanted to write something sort of quiet and um, not bombastic, you know, something mm-hmm. kind of still and intimate and small, not small ideas wise, but just, I guess, um small in the sense of like you can sort of put your arms around it yes that makes so much sense I guess that's what I mean I felt like a stillness and I think that's what your writing does for me is I sort of just pause and I know that you know this book is very hard to sum up in some ways like I know there's this element of it feeling like the first draft or a first draft of the world but did that what is that what it felt like kind of this this sort of bigger theme that actually we're not meant to be able to just sum up really quickly. Yeah. um, One of the first thoughts I had for this book, one of the first notes I made to myself was that um, I didn't want anyone to be able to say what the book was about. So I wanted to write a book that sort of resisted that kind of encapsulation that people do or that critics do. With my last book, Motherhood, it just felt like people would just say, well, it's about it's about this or it's about that. And I felt like so much was left out and it would change the way that people read the book. And so I wanted to write a book that would be very hard for people to say what it was about so that um, the whole book could work on the reader rather than the reader just looking for the things that it was supposedly about. Yeah, I actually found a a sort of comment from someone who'd read the book and I can't remember where I found it, but it's a really lovely compliment where someone said a Sheila Hetty book is like asking what life is about or what thoughts are about, i.e. you can't say what it's about. (laughs) And I thought that was a really nice way of putting it. Like it is a tangled up 
theme that you can't just sort of, yeah, describe in three words. Yeah. And I I think that's right, because you're trying to sort of mirror or match the complexity and majesty of life. Um, and life is not about, it just is, you know, and, um, and you sort of want the same for a book or I want the same for a book that I write or read. Yeah. Cause from your work, it seems like you've always been more interested in the questions rather than the answers. And I know with motherhood, that was definitely, that definitely came across. Do you think that's almost, it feels rebellious in a weird way at the moment? Cause everyone's just certain that they have the answers for everything all the time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I like the idea that it's rebellious for me. It's just um, my nature. I don't really come to the world with answers. Um, I wouldn't know what answers to give. It seems to me like the world is so mysterious and so much grander than we can ever understand. And that's my feeling of being in it, I guess, um, awe and wonder and um, curiosity and a kind of bewilderment and you know, any answer you're going to give to anything is going to immediately, in my case anyways, be sort of bombarded by by all the objections of, for why that answer is not final or absolute or, you know, it doesn't contain enough. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess I think I'm probably someone that spends a lot of time on the internet. And um, I suppose I feel surrounded constantly by people thinking that they have the answers and it is refreshing maybe for some people they move in different ways so they're kind of more around other people who are more interested in the questions but I sometimes feel like I'm wading through just constant yeah desperation for answers at all times at the moment and I wanted to ask you about that because obviously it's a choice that I'm on the internet all the time as well but (laughs) your art is is the opposite of an algorithm like pushing us towards what's trendy or what's popular and I think that's why I love your book so much is because it is a time to sit and be away from all of that but I, I know that you've said in other interviews that you feel outside of the culture sometimes. Like, I think you said something about not really going on TikTok or needing to be near it. Um, what What is your relationship like with the internet and social media? I mean, I think that's just a function of my age. You know, I'm 45 years old. So I think that if I was 25, it would be very different. I can't, I don't think that my personality um, has anything to do with it. It's just, I don't like too much information. Um, I don't like too many voices. I don't like too much coming at me. Like I, I feel very unsettled, um, in those cases. So I, I do go on the internet, you know, I, I, I look at Twitter, I look at Instagram, I, I look at TikTok, like when I have somebody links something, you know, um, or there's an article, but I don't make it the main content of my life because I think that I would just, end up crying. Like it would just be too much for me to process. And um, I I think that I like, I just like a kind of simplicity. So I, I want to choose who I talk to. And I, I just think your mental space can crumble very easily. I think like the mind is a very fragile place and like the soul is fragile too. And um, if there's just too much coming at it, none of it means anything, you know? So I want to sort of be careful, not careful in like a precious way, but because I want to, I want to make sense of things. I don't want to be overwhelmed. Mm. That's all. It's just for my own sanity. Like, I think it's fascinating how much there is and how much you can see and how much you can read. But I don't think that any one person needs to have all of that as part of their daily life. Like, it's just, what do you do with all that information? And the less you take in, 
then what you do take in becomes more powerful and more interesting. Whereas if you just take in too much, it just feels to me, I just feel very flat inside and very dead, deadened by it all. No, that makes so much sense. And I'm so with you on that. And I am very much aware of like my physical body when it gets too much. Like now I'm like, okay, I've read too much on that. And I'm gonna, (laughs) I'm gonna really make an effort to put it to one side. And and a part of me pushes back or I, I want to because I'm just being immature when I think about getting older and how I am more interested in nature. And I always used to roll my eyes at people being like, oh, you'll understand when you're older that it's about, you know, <laughs> the, the quiet moments in the garden and looking at the birds. And I used to be like, no, I want to be completely stimulated at all times. And now I'm understanding that there is a truth in that. And it sounds too simple, but we do gravitate towards greener spaces it seems as we do you know get older and want to slow down not that being in your 40s or 30s is old well I think you get more sensitive as you get older and I I think there's an idea that you get less sensitive but I think you actually get more sensitive and 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 in my case anyways I feel more loving and more receptive to love as I get older I think when I was younger I had a very hard exterior. And, um, that's a kind that, that, that was kind of tied up with ambition and sort of wanting to make a mark on the world and a kind of ruthlessness that is part of the power of being young. And then I have found getting older, like just more affected by things and yeah, just more open really. Um, and so I think that's why there can be a turn away from like the bustle of culture to nature because you're just affected by it all more. Yeah, it's so true. And I wonder if as you get older, you're obviously facing, you're going towards some sort of end, even if you obviously have like years and years and years left, you're almost thinking of the world as this finite resource. So, and I know that in the book, you you are, it's a world in it as in people are worrying about the ice caps and the species dying, or at least that's the narrator that we're getting. And there is a sense of, we need to protect this. Yeah, or I don't even know if there's a need to protect it in the book because the premise is that it, you know, the God's going to like erase it all and start over again, that this was just the first draft. So I'm not sure if it's Mm -hmm. about protecting it, but um, because I don't know if (laughs) it sort of sounds nihilistic, but I don't know if anything can be protected, really. I mean, I don't know where that power comes from to protect the world. No, that, that's definitely my own interpretation of like, we must protect, because I think the relaxing moments in the book, you know, when there is a sense of like reincarnation type movement and flow. Yeah, I guess, I guess for me, wanting to protect is sort of like, um, it's wanting to keep the human and the human perspective at the center of things, because nothing's, you can't stop time. And I, I don't think humans want to destroy the environment or want to destroy the earth, like no one knows what the consequences of things are going to be, you know, a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, or you just, you're in the flow of time. And I think it's kind of relaxing to just be part of that flow of time and to come into the world and then to disappear from the world. And the world has its own persistence beyond our, whatever we're going to do to the earth, it's going to have its persistence beyond us, you know? Yes. It's like the removal of the human ego and just seeing it for what it what it really is because someone said to me the other day they they said that they suffer from FOMO as I suppose we all do sometimes um in vulnerable moments so they were like oh I just feel like it's really sad that we're not going to be able to see how it all pans out <laughs> um but I don't really think like that I sort of think we're here and then we're not and we won't know anyway <laughs> 
Yeah. And we don't even know when, while we're here, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I read somewhere that you, one of your cover designers said that the, the front cover of Pure Colour, that lovely green, they said reading it felt like synesthesia. And I don't know if I have that, but sometimes I kind of, before I go to sleep, I see very vivid colours and shapes and things like that. How How is your process with sort of I'm not asking you to reveal your tricks or anything, but when someone describes your words like that, you know, I'm so interested in just sort of how and where you write. Um, yeah, that was Na Kim who designed the cover. And uh, she, um, yeah, it was such a nice thing she said. I mean, I, how and where I write, I mean, I write on my computer or I, you know, with this book, I wrote some stuff by longhand, you know, um, on, on the pa- on paper and then other things that I, you know, I, I spoke into a tape recorder and then I transcribed and it was all sorts of different things that came together. Um, my tricks, I mean, I wish I had tricks, you know, every time it's like a brand <laughs> new starting from nothing. Um, it would be so much easier if there were tricks. Um, but it's really just trying to figure out which, passages like speak to each other and to only keep the passages in the book that sort of speak to all the other passages, you know, like I kind of Mm -hmm. wanted the book to feel like a painting in the sense that after you finished reading it, you could have a picture of the book sort of static in your head or not so static, but sort of like one glimpse. I think that that was what I wanted. And maybe if there's like a, um, the effect of colors or maybe that's why, because, um, I wanted everything to sort of, for the book to resolve and to be a painting in the end, to be a painting in the mind. That's such a lovely way of describing it. I know that there's massive differences, but one of my favorite authors is Haruki Murakami. And there's like such surreal scenes in in his books that it is like, I don't remember reading it. I just remember sort of like hallucinating it. (laughs) But you've been described as a philosopher of mod of the modern experience. Uh, the the word philosopher and philosophy comes up so much whenever I sort of look into any any articles about you recently. But what how does that feel? Do do you read philosophy books? I studied philosophy at university, and I still read oh, okay. it. I mean, I have I'm on a trip right now, and I have Fear and Trembling with me, the Kierkegaard, and I I'm reading that for the first time, and I I, mean, I just love I love seeing another mind sort of look at the world. Um, I don't need a writer to make up a story for me to be engaged. I just want to see somebody thinking and I want them because I want to think about the world in lots of different ways. And I want lots of different lenses um, that I can apply when I look at the world. I I don't want to just look out the window and just see the trees and the houses. I I want different contexts for understanding. And so I, I love reading people that are thinking directly about this world that we're living in. Yeah, I love that because I feel like to be a writer and to be someone who is working on on projects that aren't a quick project, you know, these things do take time because they take a lot of thinking time and, and, you know, going over things in your mind, like it's just, I mean, I'm in awe of people who do take their time because I think a lot of people are in such a rush all the time. I mean, do you feel like that's part of the work? You almost have to be in a good state of mind yourself to get the work done. Well, I don't think you have to be in a good state of mind. I don't know about healthy even, but I think patient, you know, like I think 
it does, I think patience is a big part of it. And, you know, most of my books take me five years to write and, you know, not every day you're going to be working and not every day you're going to, you know, months will go by and you just think this thing is garbage and I'll never finish it and I shouldn't have started. And, you know, so there's lots of ups and downs. You just hope that the trajectory is towards something that's complete and, and, you know, resolves itself in the end. But, um, I mean, that's kind of what I like about writing novels as opposed to say short stories or whatever. Um, If you can work on it for four or five or six or seven years, then it's the best of of those seven years or it's the best of those six years that you can resolve your mind in the form of the book into its best expression. You know, it's smart. The book is smarter than you are. The book is more complex than anything that you thought when you started out because of that application of time. And it becomes something. Yeah, just I hope that it becomes like this, this, this bottomless well, you know. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Does it, does it always turn out to be something completely different than, than you thought at the beginning? Um, no, I think that it kind of becomes exactly what you thought it was going to be in the beginning, but in a different way. So it's like, there's something that's exactly like what you wanted, but it's in a way that's completely surprising. Interesting. I think I've read somewhere that you say you do enjoy working on multiple projects at once. Is that still true? It's less true. I mean, um, no, I think with this book, I was just working on this one. I think when I was younger, I had so, I, I was so, um, uh, I just couldn't focus. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was too impatient and I was always bouncing back and forth between projects, but but I'm not like that anymore. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I find that as well, there's a rhythm to each project. For me, I know that it's the same sort of cycle. Like at the moment, I'm writing a new book and I'm in the sort of bit where I'm really doubting it and could easily kind of put it all in the bin. And if I look back <laughs> through my diary at all of the other books I've done, this is exactly the time where it's happened before. Right. And I wonder, do you have that awareness in your own projects now? Do you kind of know what to expect kind of emotionally? It, you do know. And then you think, well, this is OK. Like right now, I'm I'm sort of at the beginning. And I think in the past, I would think, oh, no, what if I can't think of the next? What if I never write another book? What if I can't think of what to write about? Or, and now I'm just like, well, I'm sure, you know, something will come, you know, because it's come before. And so there's a kind of, yeah, you get used to your process and you can you feel less terror at every stage. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to touch on your two previous books as well, because I just absolutely love them. With How Should a Person Be? I know that that book includes kind of transcripts and emails as well as fictionalized and non-fiction parts. And it's just such an amazing kind of blurring of the lines. And how did that come about? Was that a plan or did that end up being like that? Well, I started off sort of um, looking at emails that friends had sent me. And, and I, I was just thinking, I was reading the Bible and, and I was thinking everybody's emails to me, it's like their own book of the Bible. It's like <laughs> their own, you know, testimony of their lives and, 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 you know, them being on the earth at this time. And so I think that sort of seeing emails from friends as books in the Bible, like immediately started making everything that I was encountering feel like literature um, and, and, and the most important 
literature like um that could mm-hmm. be written and and once you sort of if you start from that place then there's nothing that can't be brought into a book you know and um there's nothing that needs to be invented uh so i think yeah i think because i started from there that allowed a lot of things to happen i really love that because I think there's a quote, and I can't remember who first said it. I think it was a famous filmmaker or something, but saying that your your inspiration is right under your nose. Whenever you think, oh, I've got nothing to write about, it's like, it's right there. You could just, sometimes you can't see it. And I, I always feel like that when I'm reading a memoir. It's like, I feel that the, the person, the writer has sort of made their friends, obviously the main characters of their lives. And I know this is going to sound cliche, but it's almost like your everyday life is art in some ways. Yeah, I think you just, I think the thing that stands in the way of of doing that is a kind of shame or a feeling of like, well, this is too small or this is too embarrassing or this is too personal. Like, and I think it's really hard to get over that shame. And I, 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 I think we think, well, no, literature has to be bigger than me and it has to be other than me because who am I or what am I? But if you see yourself as every person and you see, you know, the fact that being a human is, is not trivial, then it's easier to, to sort of figure out what there is in front of you that is worth talking about. I mean, when I started writing motherhood, the idea of thinking about this question of, um, you know, can I not be a mother? Is it okay to not be a mother? Just felt like, how can you even write that down? Um, and it was it was very hard to convince myself that it was okay to start writing that stuff down. Um, that it, it was actually important to write this down rather than, well, this is too too petty and too personal to think about publicly. But then that's also, I think, surely the world diminishing or making small the hum- the, the the female experience around motherhood as well. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that we just diminish all our experiences. I remember when my first book came out, I felt a real shame around a few people had commented like I could have written this book. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but does that mean it shouldn't exist? That just because you feel like it could be yours? Like, isn't isn't there something quite nice in that? Right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what they want to read. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about motherhood quickly, because I really loved that. That was 2018, wasn't it? Yeah. That that came out. Yeah, I remember it so well. And I remember just reading everything, like every interview you did around that book, because I was at the time really sort of looking into my own relationship with not wanting children. And it's obviously how many years since then, four or five years since then. And I'm now in my 30s and quite sure that I don't want children. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting listening to the interviews with you because I wrote a novel two years ago now about with a protagonist that doesn't have children. And I was immediately conflated with the female character. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up doing a load of press talking about how I don't want kids. And I didn't mind it because I felt like it was helpful for me to see other women say it out loud. Mm-hmm. But what was that experience like for you? Because motherhood obviously is not a memoir. It was interesting because I, I really felt like when I started writing that book, like I I think what I want is to exist in the world as a woman without children, and that's okay. And it's not something I have to talk about for the rest of my life. And is you know, it's not something I have to feel weird about. And I think writing that book and talking about it publicly 
sort of transformed the world around me in any case that now I never have to really talk about it or justify it or explain it. And I sort of, through that book, did create the world that I ultimately wanted to live in. Um, you have to read this book called Regretting Motherhood. I don't know if you've read it by this Israeli writer, Una Dornath, or I don't know her, how to pronounce her name, Donath. Anyways, it's called Regretting Motherhood. And she interviews these, uh, she's a sociologist and she interviews all these women who have become, who became mothers either 30 years ago or five years ago, who have children of different ages and, and quotes them anonymously about um, their regret and their wish that they hadn't chosen this life. And she says there's a difference between ambivalence and regret. And we just want to erase regret from this experience. But, you know, becoming a mother is a human experience like any other and any human experience can be regretted. And um, it's just <laughs> it's just such a good book. Um, yeah, I just want to oh, I'll have to book. check that out. It's incredible. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, because I'm having so many conversations now with friends, obviously about motherhood. It's like the classic thing, being in my 30s. With, sure. But I felt really like that. I felt like I don't want to spend my whole life defining myself against something that I'm not, yeah. because that's still defining myself in the context of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And it's really tricky to extract yourself from that. I think Hadley Freeman interviewed you and at the at the very end of that article, there's sort of a wry smile from from you or from her about the fact that her ideal self is actually sitting in a coffee shop sort of without children, <laughs> even though obviously on like a soul level, she's talking about how much she loves being a mother. Yeah, she sort of says she she wishes she could be a woman who didn't want children and didn't have children. But unfortunately, she's a woman who wanted children, but she would rather have been a woman who didn't <laughs> want them. But she couldn't have been a woman who wanted them and didn't have them. So that was a funny. It's, uh, I knew what she was trying to say. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think I love when the nuances are there and we can go in like with a layered approach. It's not just um, not binary. It's like there's so many different levels of, of emotion around it. Yeah. And it's not only not binary, but it's not against other women's choices, you know, mm -hmm. that you can sort of speak about your own life without it, without criticizing other people's lives as an implication, you know? Totally. Exactly. But no, thank you so much for that book. I, I, um, it really, I think I can speak on behalf of so many women and friends of my age that we were just like, oh my God, this is literally the first thing we've read on this topic, which seems <laughs> kind of wild. I just, I think that there, I just hadn't seen in literature any thinking through of this problem, you know, and any thinking through of the problem of, well, you, you can create life, but just because you can, must you, you know? And um, I really just, I just really needed to think that through. And again, when I started, I thought this is the most trivial thing I could be thinking of. And I ended up realizing, no, this is the most profound question in a woman's life. Um, if she has that choice, then, you know, what do you do with this awesome power? Do you, you know, what does it mean if you choose not to take it? And I, I just, yeah, I wanted to think that through on the page because, um, because I don't think if you don't see it written down, you don't, you don't know that you can think along those lines. Like all my thinking has always been sort of um, sprung from things that I've read and to have none, to have no document of that in, that's just a huge emptiness. So I'm, I'm so glad that, um, that you feel that way about the book. All you want is for people to be able to, to think about everything that they need to think about. hundred percent. I mean, I feel like the most empowering thing even though that word feels really overused is like just this 
space that you can give yourself to make a decision. Because I think a lot of people ha- will openly admit that they sort of fell into things or or just did things or just did it because their mothers did it. Or you find yourself in a job for five years and you don't really know how you get there. And I think your book cracks open that sort of sitting with that discomfort and, and obviously the, the the amazing device that you use through the flipping of the coin. And it just shows time and space for a person. And I just love that. Yeah, I feel like Rachel Cusk's book, A Life's Work, did that for me. So her book allowed me to write my book. And I think we just, yeah, we just want to create intellectual space for each other. Um, all of us writers. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Actually, I wanted to ask you quickly, is is there any authors that sort of influenced you writing this book? Your Colour? Um, no, this book really just came out of like a, a, a deep sort of, um, I don't know, a deep sort of trance-like uh, state, which is the state of mourning where you're sort of apart from the world. But I, I just think like you know, the stories that my father told me before I would go to bed at night that he would make up, you know, he used to read me stories, but I would always beg him to make up stories. I always preferred those, the the kind that just, you know, you say one sentence and then here comes the next sentence and here's the next one. And every night it's different. So I I feel like it sort of more came out of that space of, um, uh, you know, oral literature, maybe like, or oral storytelling and the, the storytelling that somebody who loves you, you know, writes just for you as they speak. I feel like it came more out of that place than any books that I'd read. I mean, I don't know if I'm putting this onto the book from my own experience of reading it, but I felt like you there was a sense of dreamlike, a dreamlike state. And I always, when I think of grief, which is obviously kind of the main, the main thing you get from this book, that um, we dream so much about people that we've lost. And I always find that really interesting. Yeah. And we just dream so much about everybody we encounter too. I mean, I, I'm always wondering like, you know, why is that person in my dream? Does that mean they're very important to me? Like this person that I wouldn't even think that I would have dreamt about. It just, it it makes you wonder. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. I've loved chatting to you. I I had one last question, which was actually about the New York Times uh, weekly installments that were published. It was your diary in alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such a creative, amazing project. How did that come about? And could you talk me through it a little bit? My boyfriend called it my procrastination project. It would be like the thing that I would always turn to when I didn't feel like writing my novels. I'd be like, well, I'll go back to this diary project because I love editing. And and that project was just about editing. So, I mean, basically what I did was I had like 500,000 words of diaries over 10 years. And I just sort of dumped them all into Excel and alphabetized them and then had that as my starting text. And then I would just sort of edit and and, and just take away sentences in, in order to kind of see the shape of my self and my, my life and what my preoccupations have been. Because if you take chronology and time out of a diary, what you're left with is just, um, yeah, this repetition of themes, really. Mm. And I kind of realized like, oh, all I think about is like art and men <laughs> and whether I want to leave <laughs> Toronto, you know, like, and you just kind of feel depressed, like, oh, that's all I thought about for 10 years. But I guess, you know, what else is there to think about besides, you know, work and love? Um, but it, I just found it like a, it was kind of just this interesting thing that I would turn my mind to. And then the New York Times asked me if I could write them a, a, a piece of serialized fiction. And I just, you know, Dickens came to mind. I just thought, I'm not that kind of writer. I could never do that. And then I thought, well, maybe these diaries would work. So I'm still going to publish it as a novel. It's going to be the next book I publish. But um, I was able to sort of 
turn it into this sort of serialized, yeah, newspaper form. Oh my form. God. That's such an interesting idea. And the idea that obviously we change as we grow, but this like reoccurring self that is like just always there. Yeah, this, this eternal return, this like <laughs> Nietzschean kind of, I mean, it's kind of a doom feeling when you realize that you're, you're just <laughs> retreading the same thoughts over 10 years. But it's also, it's not only doom, it's kind of a relief. Like, because if, if you just are who you are, then there's, well, then you just, that's it, you know? that's kind of gone oh my god well that's incredible that it's going to be in the next book I love the name of your podcast I just want to say control all delete I mean there's some terror in control all delete you know like I, I I I remember like my old like IBM you know computer and it would just be it's, it's it's such an exciting escape that you can just control alt delete and then like it's all gone you know um I, anyways it, there's just something about that yeah that the name of your podcast that I love oh thank you why did you choose it um it was the first well it was the name of my first book as well so um and I tried to overthink it like obviously it was a book about growing up as a young millennial in the internet sort of world of you know old school social media so you would sort of I don't know, be living through these universal themes of being bullied and trying to edit yourself and all the rest of it. But I guess we were the first like digital natives to go through it. But um, thank you so much for all of your work. And you talking about that project in the next no- the next book has just made me so excited for more work from you to just like, gobble up. So thank you. And um, everyone listening, Pure Colour is out now. I really recommend it. And I recommend taking some time to go and sit by yourself while you read it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Emma. Appreciate it.